Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter five. We're going to pick things up where we left off last week in verse 38 as we continue this series walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the kind of things we run into today in Jesus's teaching, I think if we're honest, have become little more than cliche statements for a lot of us in our day to day life. But I think as we look at them today, they may jolt us into maybe living a little more like God designed us to live. Now, I think it's the perfect time for us to come to this passage as we have just closed up Fall Festival Week. I mean, because this passage talks about loving your enemy and not retaliating. And we just went through the one week each year that Eastsiders and Westsiders put our differences aside and choose to unite around deep fried food and split the pot, right? First year with the split the pot, it was not my number that was called, but you know, you do what you can and uh, hope for a better next year, I guess. No, but we unite around deep fried food. It's the one week each year where Eastsiders willingly cross 41. And it's the one week each year that Westsiders remove the tire spikes from the intersection of the Lloyd and Fulton Avenue or the Lloyd and St. Joe, depending on who you talk to. Now we come to this passage in Matthew 5 and Jesus talks about loving your enemies and not retaliating about turning the other cheek. And we come to this teaching and it can seem just kind of unrealistic. I mean, after all, we we look at this teaching and we think about what it feels like to be human. And we say, Jesus, a couple of the most natural things as humans is, is to retaliate when someone attacks me and to not like those who don't like me, right? It just kind of seems natural. You don't have to teach a kid to retaliate when someone takes a toy from them. Instead, you're always doing the other side, which is trying to curb the behavior whenever they hit back or throw something, right? These things seem so natural that whenever we run into Jesus's teaching, it can seem jolting. It can seem like it's just a little bit too unrealistic. But we need to remember that Jesus's words here don't don't happen in isolation. Instead, it ties to this broader sermon and it goes all the way back to, to Matthew 5, 17 through 20. when Jesus said, hey, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he goes on in verse 20 to say this. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, or unless you have a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. As we think about that idea, we need to remind ourselves again about who these Pharisees and teachers of the law were. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were men who who desired to honor God with their lives. In fact, they were very moral people. They were people who were well-respected in their communities and they were looked at as models. But the issue with these Pharisees is that oftentimes their actions didn't line up with their hearts. That's uh, the critique that Jesus often has of them. He often describes them as people who are like shells who on the outside look great, but inside there's little to no substance. 
And so Jesus had some sharp word for these Pharisees. And as we look at this passage today, I think that what Jesus is actually inviting us into is being whole people. He's inviting us into being peoples whose, whose hearts and whose words and who, whose actions align perfectly. To align the way that God desired them to align. As we come to this passage today, one idea that, that has been helpful for me in thinking through what this actually looks like in real life is thinking about the idea of posture. Now, believe it or not, growing up, I took piano lessons for three years. Um, you wouldn't know it now because if I sat behind a piano, the only thing I can play is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But I have to tell you, it's an amazing rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. We can arrange private showing later if you guys would like. Um, I know it's going to be just really a highly sought after experience. So buy your tickets now. Okay. But as I think back to my three years taking piano lessons, the thing I remember quite a bit is my piano teacher each and every lesson saying, Andrew, is the bench where it needs to be? Are your hands relaxed? Do you have the proper posture to play? And the issue was that, that whenever I would go in to play, I would just sit down, I would slouch down, I would play the keys that I had memorized and I wouldn't put myself in good position. So the challenge for me was doing what I was supposed to do, having the outcome that I desired consistently because I had poor posture when playing. Now, the same thing can be seen that later on whenever I started playing football, whenever my coach would talk to me and he would say, hey, Andrew, you got to make sure that, that you pay attention to your stance and your form. If you want to tackle well consistently, you have to work on your form. You can't just do whatever you want each time and hope for the best. You may get a tackle here and there, but you won't be able to do what you need to do consistently unless you pay attention to your form, to your stance, if you, unless you pay attention to your posture. Now, I think that the same thing is true for us each and every day in our lives, whether we're talking about our lives at work or at home or, or wherever we, else we may find ourselves. I think that our posture, our heart attitude has a lot to do with whether or not we do what we desire to do consistently. Our heart posture has a lot to do with whether or not our heart and our actions are lining up or whether we're just being a little bit of a shell on the outside. Jesus' words today, I think, can serve as a posture check where he kind of asks us the question, hey, what is your default response whenever you run into people who maybe you don't agree with, who maybe disagree with you, who maybe attack you and insult you? And he's checking our posture to see if our posture reflects his or if it's something else entirely. And we're going to pick things up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42 here, where Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus says these words and he does the same thing he's done in these last several weeks that, that we've been looking at this sermon where starting in verse 21, what Jesus starts by saying is, you have heard it said, and then he gives either a teaching from the Old Testament or something from Jewish tradition. Here's no exception. He says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. 
Now, this type of law wasn't just something that the Jewish people had. It was kind of a common law in the ancient world and even today. It's, it's called the lex talionis or the law of kind. Basically, the law teaches that the punishment must fit the crime. If someone breaks your arm, you can't go back and, and go to court and demand that both of their arms are broken. Instead, the punishment must fit the crime. It must be the same kind of punishment. It's the law of kind. So Jesus begins by pointing back to that, by pointing back to this law that was really a good kind of law because it, it checked wild revenge and retaliation. It, it kind of checked the vigilante uh, behavior that maybe some of us are bent towards and it also kind of curbed violence and curbed uh, lawlessness because it reminded people that God uh, or that there was actually consequences for actions. Now, after Jesus offers this teaching where he says, you have heard it said, he then goes on to say, but I say to you, and here he says, do not resist an evil person. Now, this can kind of catch us off guard, or at least it should, because that seems to kind of flip on its head that law from the Old Testament. How is it that Jesus can say, hey, do not resist the evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek also. How is it that Jesus can say this when that message there in the Old Testament was, was one where there was to be retribution to be had? What is it that Jesus was doing here? Well, you think we can learn a little bit from Jesus' words later on in the book of Matthew. It actually comes up in Matthew chapter 19 as these Pharisees and religious leaders come to Jesus and they begin to talk to him about divorce. And when this question comes up as Jesus is talking with these people, he kind of points them back to what God designed in the beginning about God's design in creation. And they respond back to Jesus and they said, well, well, why did Jesus command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus goes on to say, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way in the beginning. I believe this same principle applies here too. I think we could look at Jesus as saying, hey, Moses permitted eye for eye and tooth for tooth because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way in the beginning. I mean, we just have to think about the first time that violence and vengeance pops up in the Bible in Genesis chapter four, as Cain and Abel are um, these two brothers that are pictured in this story. See, both Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice to God and, and God was more pleased with Abel's sacrifice and Cain becomes jealous of his brother. He has a desire to uh, really justify himself or, or to get vengeance for not having this same type of offering. And God comes to him and he's like, hey, hey, you don't need to do this. In fact, what God says in verse seven is say, hey, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Well, Cain goes ahead and kills his brother instead of ruling over sin, actually has sin ruling over him. And in this story, what we see is this first act of violence came out of the fact that, that he could not believe that his brother's offering was better than his. He wanted to get even. He wanted to make that right. And this desire for vengeance led to violence. But that was never God's heart or God's design. 
Cain took vengeance into his own hands. He ultimately made a way where God had to come and then put in a way for there to be retribution, to curb violence, because mankind's heart just kept running after it more and more as you follow the story of the Bible. But I think Jesus's words from Matthew 19 apply here as well when he said, it was not this way from the beginning, but this was put in place because your hearts were hard. We can understand a little bit more about this by thinking back to the passage from Ezekiel that that, um, Pastor Phil pointed us to a few weeks ago as he preached on Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And he pointed us back to this prophecy in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where God says this through Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is, hey, rather than living out of that hard heart that you had before where there were these laws put in place just to make a way because your heart was hard. Now, when God gives you your new heart, you don't have to live the same way anymore. You don't have to give us, or you don't have to live in the same patterns that man has lived in for a long time. Rather, Jesus gives us a glimpse of God's intent for us. As we look at this, it can seem pretty unrealistic though, right? One New Testament commentator, a guy named R.T. France says this. He says, those who have understood the true thrust of Jesus's teaching here, I've often declared it to be not only extreme and unwelcome, but also practically unworkable in the world. It seems like it's just too far gone. It seems like it's just too unrealistic to actually be workable in this world. But what I want us to do now is is to now go to look at these application points that Jesus gives us as he gives us four application points and ask the question, how is it that we might make what seems unworkable workable in our lives? One thing we need to note here is that what Jesus is not doing is giving us another set of rules to make sure we check off the list as we walk through these four things. Instead, what he's doing is he's giving us a new set of principles or values to live by. If we look at what Jesus says here and we simply settle for the letter of the law, I think that what we'll find ourselves doing is we'll end up in the same place where that the Pharisees ended up, where we can say, well, you know, I kept those specific things you said, Jesus, but actually miss the heart under what Jesus is actually saying. Now, like I said at the top of the message, I think that these statements that Jesus makes here have become little more than cliche statements for many of us. I mean, you've probably said or heard it said, you know, you just have to turn the other cheek when talking about a difference with someone. But, but sometimes that's just kind of thrown out there as just a statement, just kind of move on, you know. <laughs> or maybe you've heard it said, you know, well, that's the kind of guy that would really just give you the shirt off of his back and just talking about how generous someone is. And that's a, another picture that pops up in the story, only it pops up in a very different way in Jesus's teaching. Or maybe you've heard it said, you know, she really just goes the extra mile and talking about someone's work ethic, whereas Jesus here is talking about something a little different than work ethic. As we come to Jesus's teaching, he begins by saying this first one. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. 
Now, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, that means one of two things. And, and there, it's just important to note this as we think about the ancient culture where Jesus said this. If he strikes you on the right cheek, it means it was either a backhanded slap with the right hand, which was an extreme insult, or it was an open-handed slap, slap with the left hand, which was considered an unclean hand because it was used to do any activities that were considered unclean. Now, I don't know that it's really that important that we figure out which hand it is. What's important is that we see how big of an insult this would have been. This is the, the type of insult that just instantly causes your blood to boil. It's like someone spitting in your face and you just having to just stand there and, as they're doing something like that. As Jesus offers this teaching, it's not just someone, you know, just slapping you for fun. No, this is a direct insult and it's known that it's a direct insult. My natural response to these things, as I'm sure for many of us here, is just that blood boiling thing where you either want to hit them back or you just want to run away to get away from it. But here Jesus offers us another picture. First, I think it's important for us to ask the question, why is it that we have that initial response where we just want to hit back or we just want to run away? I think oftentimes it's because we see that as a direct knock on our honor. Whenever someone does this, they're ultimately disrespecting us in a really powerful way. And when this happens, again, it causes us to get extremely, extremely angry. And as I thought about what Jesus said this week, I think the thing that, that really impressed on me that, that God is saying in this passage is this statement. And, and I kind of tried to get rid of it at first because I'm like, no, that, that's too convicting. But, but here is what I think God is saying in this passage. I think he's saying, hey, don't mask your desire for vengeance with the perception of a desire for justice. Rather, entrust both to God. Again, don't mask your desire for vengeance with the perception of a desire for justice, rather entrust both for God. Now, why do I say that I think that that's what Jesus is saying? Well, I think it's because whenever I search my own heart, I often find that I have a really hard time telling the difference between my desire for vengeance and a desire for justice. Sometimes my heart has a way of deceiving me into thinking that I'm just purely seeking justice when the reality is I want vengeance to be had upon this person. But one of the things that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse nine, going through the end of the chapter where he talks about love being this, this core value for us, he goes on to say there towards the end to entrust vengeance to the Lord. To trust that God is a just God who will come through on what he says he's going to do. Romans 12, 9 through the end of chapter is a great passage to read later to think about what it looks like to live this out day in and day out. Now, one thing I think that we need to make clear here is that Jesus is speaking specifically about personal conflict or being personally wrong. What Jesus is not saying here is that if you see a child being abused, you should just watch that happen and, and maybe run away or whatever, just not resist it. No, Jesus is talking specifically here about us checking our heart. I think what he's trying to say is do not be vengeful. Don't be a vigilante. Don't be a self-justified distributor of justice. Rather, let God be the judge whenever it comes to you yourself. 
Now, Jesus also never suggests in this passage that we turn someone else's cheek or that we make someone else vulnerable. Rather, Jesus kind of points to the kind of person who lives in God's kingdom who will allow themselves to be injured by others who mean to hurt them rather than retaliate. Who will stand up in the midst of that and stand up to the person without seeking vengeance. Now, I think this view should jolt us into asking the question, what is my default posture when someone attacks me? Now, we can't walk through everything that this text does and does not mean. But I want to again make clear one thing that this text does not mean. Verse 39 does not mean that a Christian should subject themselves to physical abuse or physical danger. I think if we read this text and we think that it's about or that the application is for us to entrust ourselves to abuse or danger, what we're doing is we're getting the letter of the law, but we're missing the heart behind it. You see, because getting yourself out of a situation of abuse is not retaliation. It's not vengeful, which is what Jesus is trying to curb here. We need to make sure we understand what Jesus's intent here is in pointing to the intent here of, of, the, of the, the law here that he gives us or this teaching that he gives us about turning the other cheek. But I think we can think a little bit about what it looks like to put this into practice in our everyday life, to actually stand back up and turn the other cheek when interacting with others. I think by turning the other cheek and standing up to a person, what we can begin to do is actually get binge, or actually get uh, clarity on the situation whenever we choose that rather than getting revenge. You see, rather than trading harsh words or, or gossiping back and forth, we can choose to stand up to the person and confront them to get clarity on what's happening. If that doesn't work, we can follow the Matthew 18 model and take someone else with us to get clarity on what it is that's happening there. And we can actually address our differences that way rather than falling directly into trying to get vengeance. I think we can evaluate ourselves even whenever we take this model to figure out if we are in the wrong in any way. If maybe this, what seems like this perfect self-justice isn't quite as justified as we think because we ourselves maybe are in the wrong slightly. Regardless of what it is, I think what we need to see here is that Jesus isn't inviting us into some passive uh, position of becoming like a doormat. Rather, he's giving us a picture of someone who stands back up to an offender and seeks to bring about true justice, which is actually curbing and turning the situation and changing the trajectory of the future. You see, because we have a tendency, again, to either think that we've got one of two responses. Either we hit back or we run away. But the thing that we see in our world is that whenever we choose to keep responding with hitting back or running away, there's never an end to that cycle of violence, right? It just keeps going on and on until someone stands up and makes a difference. Until someone stands up and shows a better way. And Jesus is inviting us into being people who show a better way to the world around us. Now these points call Jesus' followers to be more generous than the law demands. A proper response to these challenging words will result in us living differently in the world. These aren't just a set of rules to be followed, but values to be applied in day-to-day -day life. 
But as we think about these teachings, we must not forget that these are not just teachings that Jesus gave, but this is a life that Jesus actually modeled for us. You see, because Jesus himself was spit on and beaten and yet he stand, stood up to his offenders and ultimately even went to the cross. Why? So that we could be rescued. This was not something that Jesus merely said. It was something he modeled and something that his followers modeled in the years and in the centuries following, which resulted in the Roman world being flipped upside down and ultimately the world we live in now being uh, in a place where Christianity is actually uh, accepted by many rather than just being a minority view of some Jewish peasants from the land of Galilee. Jesus actually shows us this way, the way of the cross, which should ultimately mold our behavior and our living as followers of Jesus. And when we do, when we stand up to these acts of violence, we can put an end to the never ending cycle that seems to be present in our world. Now we go ahead and we see that Jesus goes on to say this in verse 43. Let's go ahead and see what Jesus says. Verses 43 through 47. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Jesus, again, here starts by offering a teaching from the Old Testament. Whenever he says, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies. This comes up in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And, and it's something that I think uh, some of us in this room would have read in our Bible reading this pl plan this last year if we didn't give up in Leviticus chapter 7, right? Because there are some weird things in Leviticus. But here we see the heart of a lot of Jesus's teaching. It's a teaching about loving your neighbor that Jesus uh, redefined for his culture in Luke chapter 10 as he talked about the Good Samaritan there and, and how the Good Samaritan, was, uh, how he ultimately, ultimately flips how the people understood this on its head by showing that our neighbor is more than just the people who are like us. But this second statement here, the statement hate your enemy or hate your enemy is not something that appears anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament command, but it's something that a lot of people in Jesus's day seem to think was just assumed because of the teaching of love your neighbor. They thought, okay, well, if it says love your neighbor and doesn't say what I should do with my enemy, if I'm going to love my neighbor, then I must need to hate my enemy, right? Because they're going to get in the way of me loving my neighbor occasionally. So I need to make sure that, that there's a clear divide here. But Jesus flips that teaching on its head. It was so common in the early world that, that whenever we found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in a place near Qumran, we found that, that the community there in Qumran had a rule for their community, a community rule. And in that community rule near the top, here was one of the things they said about how it was that they needed to live. Talking about God, this community rule in the first century Jewish world, they said he commanded by the hand of Moses and all his servants, the prophets, that they may love all that he has chosen and hate all that he has rejected. 
This was the common understanding that people were to love their neighbor and hate their enemy. But Jesus' is teaching, instead of that, says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. As you read this, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, but, but who is my enemy? And I think one of the things that Jesus might say to us today, well, your enemy is that person that popped in your head as impossible to love or pray for. That is that enemy that Jesus is talking about. It's that person that you think is impossible for you to love or pray for. And I think one of the things we can't miss is how often God will work in and through us praying for our enemies or our persecutors to transform both our hearts and their hearts. Jesus is inviting us into a world transforming way of living and principle to live by that can ultimately show the world what our God is like. That's what Jesus kind of points to here. But think again about this enemy idea, because I don't want us just to move on from this without thinking through how this really does interrupt day to day life. Who is that enemy for you? Who is it that seems to be impossible for you to love? Is it someone from a different political party? Is it someone where you think I could never love or pray for someone who actually has that political view? I could never love or pray for someone who actually supports a bill like that or an organization like that. Or maybe for some of us in this room today, the issue is, is that enemy that we have in our mind is someone of another race. You see, we live in a world today where a lot of times we like to act like we're well beyond race ever being an issue. But if we're honest with ourselves, as we look around at the world, and maybe even if we look into our own hearts, we see that there is something inside of us that is broken, that tells us that someone different than us should be treated differently than maybe we treat someone like us. And Jesus is saying, hey, that's not okay. Maybe for some of us in this room, that person who we consider an enemy is someone from a different country. Where anytime we even think about that country or that culture or someone that speaks that language, we have something inside of us that begins to burn in a way that has anger and hate at the core. Jesus is saying, there's no room for that in my kingdom. He goes on to say, hey, why is it that we do this? And he says, that you may be called children of your father in heaven. This should remind us back to what Jesus says back in the Beatitudes. He starts in Matthew chapter five, verse seven, by saying, hey, blessed are those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. And then in verse nine, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. You see, whenever we love our enemies, whenever we pray for our persecutors, we are living like children of God and that we are reflecting what God is like to the world. This is powerfully illustrated in the book of Romans in chapter five in verses eight through 10. I want us to read this together as we see why this is the case that this would be a reflection of God. Romans 5, eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's what? For if while we were God's enemies, 
We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, whenever we make that decision to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, we are giving the world a glimpse of the only reason we have any hope in this life. The only reason we have hope is because we stood as enemies of God. We stood directly opposed to him. And while we stood opposed to him, he chose to love us and pour out his love in such a way as to invite us into his family so that we can have hope, so that we can gather together and worship, so that we can be transformed. Whenever we choose to love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, we are living out what God has already shown to us. Now, in Jesus's application of these points, he talks about how God's love for his enemy is seen in everyday life. He talks about how God causes the sun to rise for both the wicked and the good, for the evil and the good. He also says that, that, you know, God also causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, which in a culture where everything was done through farming was always a blessing. So God gives these blessings to both the evil and the good, to the righteous and the unrighteous. God's goodness is experienced by both. And Jesus goes on there to say, hey, if you love only those who are like you, what are you doing more than the tax collectors and sinners? Don't even the pagans do that? It's like Jesus is saying to these people, he's like, hey, he's saying, hey, don't the people you hate and you think you're better than do the exact same thing that you're saying you do to set you apart from the rest of the world? New Testament commentator Craig Blumberg says this about this idea. He says the true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat or persecute them. Now, if this idea doesn't sound challenging enough, let's look at this final verse of Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. If turning the other cheek and loving your enemy didn't seem like too much to ask, now Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I think there are a couple of things we need to look at here to help us understand a little bit of what Jesus is communicating. First, this isn't just the... the Excuse me. This isn't just the summary of verses 38 to now, but this is Jesus kind of concluding verses 17 through the end of this chapter and even transitioning into the next chapter. So this is part of a bigger picture. The second thing is I think that what comes to our mind whenever we think perfect probably isn't the most helpful picture for this Greek word teleos that that is used to, to talk about what Jesus said here. See, this word teleos is used to talk about something attaining the goal or the purpose for which it was designed. It's a picture of completion. It's a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of something actually being like it was designed to be. You see, a lot of times whenever we think about that word, we just think about moral perfection and not something else. And the final thing I think is important is that we recognize that Jesus is not upholding an impossible reality just to show us our need for grace. 
Instead, the same Jesus who gives this command, who says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is the same Jesus who just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 11 says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what is it that Jesus is communicating here? Well, I think that this idea of wholeness will help us think through this. Do you think we can translate this, be whole as your heavenly father is whole? This idea of being whole is to be singular, to be wholly devoted to something. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. We get this idea if we remember that Jesus is talking about a greater righteousness or a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Because what was Jesus's critique of the Pharisees? It was that their hearts and their actions, their hearts and their words did not line up. They were not whole people. They were not people who had those two things integrated. Instead, they were one way in their heart and one way in their action. And what Jesus is inviting us into is a wholeness where our hearts and our lives line up. So how is it that God is whole? Well, think about it. Our God is a God whose heart and whose action and whose words always line up every single time. Our God is a God who acts as a whole being at all times. There's never a time where he just breaks off a little piece of himself and throws that out and divorces that from the rest of who he is. Instead, he acts consistently each and every time. And so that's what Jesus is inviting us into, is into a type of wholeness that contrasts with the life the Pharisees were living. You see, I think Jesus is inviting us into this idea of wholeness. And this idea, as we look at it in this context, may seem like something that is extremely daunting or way too big for us to even pursue. But instead of seeing it like that, I think we should see this as a gracious invitation for God to actually deal with the stuff inside that maybe we are scared to deal with. He's inviting us in to recognizing that there's something more to life than we experience whenever we've got one thing going on in our heart and another thing in our action. Maybe for some of us here today, that means that what we need to do is we go back to what we talked about several weeks ago and that idea of anger. And we recognize that right now we are so consumed by anger that how we live at home is completely determined by something that's completely unrelated, whether it's something from our childhood or it's something from work or it's something from somewhere else. We are living out of this anger that's poisoning our relationship with others and even our own hearts. I think Jesus is saying, come, be made whole. Maybe for some of us, it's not anger. Maybe it's lust and we are just completely consumed by this. And we think we've tried everything we possibly can to get out from under it. But there's one thing going on in our heart and it just rages on. And while we keep, try to keep this good looking shell on the outside, it just seems to be eating us away. I think Jesus is saying, come, be made whole. For some of us, it may be our marriage, like we talked a little bit about last week, the idea of keeping or holding on to the marriage covenant, holding on to our marriage vows for one more year or month or week, or maybe even the rest of the day seems like too much. And I think Jesus is saying, come experience the wholeness I desire for you. 
maybe for some of us, it's that desire for vengeance or that hate of an enemy. And you're thinking right now, you just don't know what I've been through. I think Jesus is saying, come, be whole. Experience my design for you and what God created you for in the beginning. As we close out service today, we're going to take a couple minutes to respond to God in worship. I want to invite you to take this opportunity to think about what is that thing that's causing you to hold back everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace. God, I thank you for being one who always acts consistently in all that you do. You're a God who we can count on no matter what, that even when we run the other direction, you run after us and show us your heart. God, we want to be people who are whole as you are whole, who experience perfection as you designed us to experience. God, would you search our hearts now? Would you give us boldness to respond and then take you up on your invitation to experience you, whether it's the first time or we've done this again and again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.